You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you today. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake, and I'm just uh, so glad you're joining us on this week before Thanksgiving. Uh, We're going to continue our uh, teaching series we've been in through the book of Colossians today, and uh, Jennifer is going to uh, read today's passage for us. And so if you will, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word and take it away, Jennifer. Okay, it's Colossians 3, 17 through 21, and... 4-1. 4-1. Yeah, I had to look. Go. I've got it printed here, but I, even my <laughs> old lady glasses. Uh, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents. I'm going to put my thing down here. In everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to um, curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reference for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as in working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you take a seat. Oh, so uh, sometimes you, you read a passage in Scripture, and you're just like, oh, man, that's so good. Like, I got to memorize that. I got to write it on my bathroom mirror. I'm going to post that thing on the Insta, but only after I pick the perfect background, right? And then sometimes you read a passage in Scripture, and you're like, where are my scissors? I'm going to Thomas Jefferson this thing, you know, or where's my Sharpie? Let me just start redacting stuff, right? I have a good feeling, uh, how the majority of us feel uh, about this passage. And it's probably not the uh, pick out a background on Instagram side of things, right? This, this, is a, uh, this is a difficult passage, especially in our modern culture to hear. Uh, this is a passage that uh, has been used uh, to justify for uh, centuries uh, the mistreatment and the abuse of women and uh, children and the justification of slavery. And it's sickening and it's gut-wrenching and it's wrong. And it's wrong morally to use this passage to justify those things. And it's also wrong in its understanding of what's being taught in this passage. But that's hard for us to see because so much of what's in this passage just feels so offensive. And I just want you to know that I feel that too. Uh, 
it's not necessarily like, sometimes you're just so excited to teach a passage. And sometimes you're like, man, this is a doozy. And this is, this is one of those doozies, right? So I feel that. But this passage, uh, the way that it has been used to justify the mistreatment of people is, uh, is wrong for so many reasons, but one of them, and maybe even on a foundational reason why it's so wrong, is because this passage was given for the complete opposite purpose. See, when Paul penned these words, what he was doing was he was helping the church in Colossae think about how to take these heavenly realities that are true about them. Remember how Colossians 3 begins? Set your mind on things above. Set your hearts on things above. Take these realities of what's true of you in heaven because of Christ, what he's done for you, that your old self is dead with Christ. You've been raised. Now you're in Christ. You're a new life and live out this new life. And he starts talking about how to do that in church community. We covered that last week. And then he moves into this section, how to do that in the home. And what he says is kind of the hinge verse between connecting this is in verse 17 when he says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what he's calling us to do, to to do everything that we do in the name of of the Lord Jesus. And then he begins moving into the household, giving us a sense of a household code of how to do whatever we do in the name of Jesus or as a representative, an empowered representative of Jesus. So that's what it means to do something in the name of someone, right? Like if uh, your boss sends you to a meeting on their behalf, you're there as their representative in their name, right? That's, you get that, right? Well, when when this says, do whatever you do in the name of Jesus, you're saying, okay, as an empowered representative of Jesus, that in whatever you do, so we add this phrase in the name of Jesus to our prayers, right? At the end, most of us do that. And a little insider knowledge here, many of us don't know why we do that. It's just, it's just like, it's the cultural way to be polite when you hang up with God, right? At the end of a, end of a prayer. But in reality, when we pray in Jesus' name, we are saying, okay, I am praying this in the power of Jesus. Like, that's what gives me the audacity to think I can talk to the God of the universe. I'm coming in the name of Jesus, empowered by him to have this ability to to talk directly with God. And I'm coming, and what I'm asking is what he would ask for. That's what you mean when you say in the name of Jesus. It might cause you to start praying a little bit differently if you know that that's what you're saying when in the name of Jesus. But you're saying, I'm asking as his representative. I'm asking what he would ask for. Well, Paul says in this passage, not only should we pray in the name of Jesus, but we should be able to put in the name of Jesus next to every single thing we do, right? Not just church things, not just spiritual things, but Everything, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus as his empowered representative. And then he says, okay, let me help you figure out what that looks like by talking through the common relationships found in a Greco-Roman household. Wives and husbands, 
children and parents, slaves and masters. But his point is to help flesh out, this is how you represent Jesus to one another in these relationships. That's the purpose of this passage, which makes the fact that this passage has been used primarily by men to uh, mistreat and abuse women and children and slaves. Just completely revolting and sickening and gross. So, you know, the question that I I guess I got to ask you all is, and I, (laughs) is that, in the middle of all of, of the tension around this passage and just how offensive it sounds and how much baggage it carries and how it's been misused in the past, can't, can we, before we just like, just kind of go to our, our trigger side of things and just say like, I just want to redact this, you know, grab my scissors, let me just cut this out. Before we just try to discard it or dismiss it or ignore it, can we first try to really understand it? To really understand what is Paul saying here? How are we supposed to represent Jesus in the house? Because see, I think if we can understand what he's saying here, and especially if we can get a picture of what it looks like here, then then it might hit a little differently. And so my question to you is, are 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 you willing to try to stick with me to try to understand it? Okay? And, you know, if not, then I understand. But, uh, you know, try to leave slowly. Uh But let's, let's try to really dive into this. So this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going. We're going to take these three relationships, these three couplets that are going on in this, uh, this passage. Uh, the uh, wife and husband, the children and parents, and the slaves and masters. And we're going to try to understand each, each what he's, Paul saying in each one and get a picture of what it looks like. And then at the end of this, we'll decide what to do with this. Sound good? Oh, thanks, Barry. Okay, so that's where we're going. Y'all, can you hang in there? Can we try to see this this through? Okay, well, good. I'm guessing that your answer is yes, so here we go. Um, So let's let's begin with wives and husbands. And and just right before we really dive into this, I do think it's worth noting the the order of the parties that are addressed here. See, uh, wives and then husbands. And you know, usually even in our progressive world today, it, it's, it's spoken to as husbands and wives. But here, Paul addresses wives first. And that's noteworthy because in that day, <coughs> excuse me, in that, in that day, there were household codes, common Greco-Roman household codes. And in the common Greco-Roman household codes, they didn't address uh, the wife at all. It was just geared to the, the man of the house. In fact, they wouldn't address wives or children or slaves. But here in this passage, Paul actually addresses all three of them, the subordinate, culturally subordinate ones in the relationship, if you will. He addresses them and he addresses them first. And if you can imagine, and it's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience in Colossae that was getting this letter delivered to them from Rome, I mean, from, from Paul. But if, if you can try to imagine, someone is reading this letter to this house church. They're hearing this for the first time. And when Paul gets to this part of the, uh, of the letter, or when the reader gets to this part of Paul's letter, and he begins to address wives 
and then husbands, and children, and then parents, and slaves, and then masters, it would have been incredibly dignifying to them. However, this doesn't feel dignifying today, does it? Because when Paul addresses the wives, what does he say? He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husband, as is fitting to the Lord. You think, okay, yeah. And just not to beat around the bushes, uh, submission, the word submit, it, it means to arrange yourself under or to arrange or to put you know, the will of another ahead of your own. And in this case, it's a call for wives to do that in regards to their husbands, to, to arrange themselves under their husbands, to put the husband's will ahead of their own. And uh, man, whew, that's offensive sounding, isn't it? I mean, that's offensive. I get that. As people, it's because of passages like this in Paul's writings, and there are a number of passages, a couple of different times that Paul says this in his letters, and it's because of this uh, teaching that many people understandably have, have labeled Paul a misogynist. Like he is anti-women, that he thinks that women are inferior to men, and, and you know, <laughs> It makes sense how you can conclude that from these kind of statements. Uh, however, there it's worth noting, and I hope you can hear this, that there are other teachings of Paul's that, that really seem to indicate that he wasn't actually a misogynist, that he didn't think women were inferior to men. See, like Paul made it clear in a a number of his writings that he believed, based on Genesis 1, 26 and 27, that that both men and women are created in the image of God and therefore equal in value and dignity and importance. And that that belief is only strengthened by Jesus' death and resurrection. So he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 In 28, these words, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, his his point being here is that In Christ, there is no distinction in value or worth or importance between any of these groups, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, men and women, because we're all equal in Christ. See, our world has been so shaped by the Christian notion of equality that we take take equality for granted. But it was not that way in Paul's day. In that day, women were believed to be inferior, inferior to men. That was the common thought. For example, Aristotle, key thinker, right? In his work, the original, uh, in the origin of humans and animals, taught that the female is a misbegotten male. And in his famous work, Politics, he wrote, as regards the sexes, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. <coughs> oh, sorry. Uh, Jenny, you need some water? <laughs> Me and you, we both need some water up here. Okay. 
So uh, <laughs> that was the common thinking of that day. Men are superior, women are, are inferior. So when Paul penned that in Christ there is no male and female, he was saying something radically countercultural. He was saying that there is no distinction between man between men and women's value and standing before God. That he's saying, okay, there is women are not inferior. Men are not superior. We're all equal in dignity and worth in the eyes of God created in his image and died for, paid for by Jesus, equally standing in Christ before God. That's what he believed. And yet, he also says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. And that, that just doesn't compute, Right? Like in our thinking, either you believe men and women are equal, and therefore you would not ever call even a subset of women wives to submit to a subset of men, husbands, or you believe that women are not equal, and so you would call them to submit. Like we we would like to say to Paul, hey, Paul, you can't have it both ways, right? Like it just doesn't compute, but... Friends, before we press that issue any further, let's at least consider what he says to the men, to the husbands. Here's what he says to them, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now notice, he doesn't say husbands, lead your wives. He says husbands, love your wives. Now submission, it has a role, an added aspect to it of placing yourself under like the authority or the leadership of another. And so it would make sense that Paul would then say in the next line, and their husbands lead your wives. But that's not what he says. He says, husbands, love your wives. And that word that he uses for love is the Greek word agape. And agape is a a form of love that was used to describe uh, self-giving, sacrificial love. It's, the, it's, it's, it's agape is the word that Jesus uses in John 15, 13. He basically gives us a definition of it in John 15, 13, when he says that greater love, agape, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. See, the, this call to love is a call for a husband to sacrificially serve their wife to be committed to the good of their uh, wife, even when it costs them greatly. See, this is a call for husbands to put their wives ahead of themselves. Which means, friends, in, in two sentences, Paul has given us a pattern for marriage where the husband leads by loving, by placing his wife ahead of himself seeking her good above his own, while the wife willingly, on her own accord, places her husband above herself, putting his interests ahead of her own, only to find out that his interests are her flourishing. And around and around you go. See, uh, this relational pattern has been called a uh, submission competition or a uh, race to the bottom. So you, it's, it's this idea, you, you go first. No, 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 you go first. No, no, I'm here to serve you. No, no, I'm here to serve you. 
It it gives us, I think, a beautiful picture of what Jesus meant when he said that in the kingdom of God, the last will be first and the first will be last. Like wife, submit to your husband. Be last. But husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Give of yourself even at great cost to yourself for their good. Let the first be last. Let the last be first. Because that's the pattern that Paul has given us here in this passage for how we represent Christ in our marriages as husbands and wives. See, and it's helpful to remember that even though this instruction I think is helpful, it it. it it can get misconstrued for sure. It certainly has, which is why Paul roots it to a person. This is why the, the verse before this is, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. He roots it to Jesus. He says, you know what this looks like? It looks like Jesus. You're representing Jesus in your marriage. And as I think about, think about Jesus, how did, how did Jesus submit to an equal? Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You see Jesus praying to the Father who is his equal. God the Son, God the Father, God the Spirit, all equally God. And yet what does he say to the Father? And take this cup from me, meaning all that he's about to suffer, but not what I will, but your will be done. This is Jesus submitting to his equal to serve. And then what's, what happens next? The next day, Jesus is crucified on a cross. Greater love has no one other than this. Lay down one's life for their friends. On the cross, he lays down his life for all of us, for humankind. That is incredible agape love. See, what you have in the person of Jesus is this this picture of service where he would serve the Father and he would serve his followers. In every relationship, he would put others first. And so husbands and wives, wives and husbands, when it comes to your marriage, do it in the name of Jesus. How? Put the other one first. Put the other one first. And man, I'll tell you, friends, that when you have a marriage where each person, husband and wife, is for the good of the other. It's about putting the interest, it's all committed to putting the interests of the other ahead of themselves. You know what that feels like? It feels like heaven. It feels like heaven. Because you know what is in heaven? God. <laughs> and God, the triune God, what you have within the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, is, is God, is a God who lives in loving community, always putting the other ahead of themselves. 
I exist for you. No, I exist for you. I exist for you. I'm here for your glory. No, I'm here for your glory. I'm here for your glory. It's often referred to as the dance of the Trinity. And Paul is saying, hey, marriages, get swept up in that dance. It's like heaven. This is how we are to image Christ. Husbands and wives, are you loving each other that way? Are you representing Jesus in everything you do within your marriage by putting the interests of your spouse ahead of your own? Okay. Second relationship. Still with me? Okay, no one's thrown anything at me yet, so that's good. Okay. Um, so Paul then moves into the, the next common household relationship, which is children and parents. And here's what he says, starting in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Let me just say, verse 20 in this passage is my favorite verse. I love that verse. Children, obey your parents. Oh, that'll preach. Right, guys? My sons are up here. <laughs> And I love that verse. Uh, now, I will say that when I was a kid, I felt that that verse was a little overstated, right? Like, obey your parents in everything? It's like, really? Well, no, not really. Let me just say that real quick. Real quick. Uh, there, there, like, think about in Paul's day, there were many people who chose to follow Jesus, even though their parents were telling them they shouldn't. And we're even saying that they would be disowned if they choose to follow Jesus. There are exceptions to the rule where you are children to disobey your parents when they're calling you to do something that God wouldn't call you to do. He is our ultimate authority. However, I think the reason that Paul puts this so strongly here is that he's trying to communicate that uh, this is the rule, obedience. It's not the exception that as an orientation, children are called to obey their parents, which then puts a lot of responsibility on the parents, right, to actually make sure that what we're calling them to do is right and wise and for their good, not just for our own selfish interests. See, in that day, uh, in Paul's day, this would have been uh, a very countercultural statement to call especially fathers in that day who were the authority in the house, household and that to call them to uh, not embitter their children so they don't become discouraged. Like that, they, that would have been a wild thought and which is so weird to us today, right? But in that day, uh, kids were uh, looked at uh, for their usefulness and not as a, their like as a person, your dignity and worth, and so like kids were were all as a like the the common practice was that the father of the house would then get his way by uh, just having his kids serve him to do whatever the kids want like whatever he wants his kids to do that that the kids were there for his prosperity for his comfort for his help. This is really highlighted in the fact that uh, uh, the widely practiced, um, the wide practice of infanticide, 
which uh, in that day, uh, parents would uh, like abandon uh, babies to the elements to die if they didn't think that that child was going to be useful for them. Like that was, that was the mentality, that gets you a little bit into the mentality of how people saw kids in that day. And yet here, Paul writes to fathers and he says, okay, fathers, uh, don't embitter your children or they'll grow discouraged. And listen to what he's saying. He's saying, hey, fathers, pay attention to the emotional health of your kids. Friends, no one else was saying anything like that. This is radically countercultural. But Paul's saying, based on his belief that every person is made in the image of God and therefore inherent dignity and worth, you need to treat your, your children not as tools to be used, but as people to be loved. And you need to pay attention to what, how they're doing <laughs> and how you treat them should be for their flourishing and not for their embitterment or discouragement. Like, take care of your kids. <laughs> Meet their physical needs and emotional needs and, and spiritual needs. The, the, the passage that uh, is parallel to, to Colossians chapter 3 is a, found in Ephesians chapter 6. And in that passage, uh, Paul adds in this line. He says, bringing your kids up in the instruction of the Lord. Like we're supposed to teach them and train them up to know God and to follow his ways. This is how parents are to parent. And, and don't treat kids as, they're, as if they're tools, right? We say, well, okay, of course. But man, I'll tell you, as a parent, it's easy to just try to, be, to act selfishly and, and relate to my, my kids who are awesome as sometimes annoyances because I just want to rest. You know, it's just not an image of Jesus. Now, where do image Christ and how we relate both children to parents and parents to children, which means children. Look at the one who said in John 15, 31, I love the father and I do exactly what my father has commanded me. That's Jesus. And children, you represent Jesus when you obey your parents. That's what Jesus did with the Father. And then parents do everything in the name of the one who parentally cared for his disciples. If you think about it through that grid, right? Think about how he graciously and patiently allowed them to be where they were, not where he wanted them to be. Who gave his disciples space to grow up and to mature, who did not exasperate them, but lovingly and wisely brought them up in the training and the instruction in the Lord, who did not belittle them when they messed up, which they did often, but instead graciously came alongside of them to help them grow and flourish. That's the way children and parents are called to relate to one another. They are to relate to one another in the name of Jesus. So children, are you relating to your parents in the name of Jesus? Parents, are you relating to your children in the name of Jesus? Finally, Paul moves 
uh, to the third relationship that was common in the Greco-Roman household, which was the relationship between a slave and the master. Let me read these verses again, and then uh, I'll speak to the big elephant in the room. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, now before uh, we consider what Paul says here and his application to us today, which is namely the way it applies to us today is within the work world, right, of employer and employee relationships. But before I get to any of that, I just want to address the big question that this, these verses bring to mind, which at least in my mind, the big question is, is why doesn't Paul just say slavery is bad? Right? And why doesn't he just say, hey, slaves, escape from your masters. Masters, free your slaves. This sermon would be a lot more fun to preach if that's what he had said, right? And a lot less harm would have been done, I think, if that's what he had said in the name of this passage. I wish he had said that. Why doesn't he say that? I don't know. I don't know for sure. However, I do know, and we, I think we all can know a couple reasons that, uh, how do I say this in the in positive? I, I don't know. We can know some reasons why he didn't say this. Okay, so he, he didn't say this because he was as if he, the reason he didn't say this wasn't because he was pro-slavery. Paul was not pro-slavery. He was very clearly anti-slavery. And we know that because, uh, well, for a number of reasons. One, Paul was a student of the, of the uh, law and the prophets or what we call the Old Testament And he knew that uh, God was in the business of freeing slaves. That God is in the business of freeing slaves. The, uh, like that's the entire Exodus story, right? Where God redeems Israel from Egyptian slavery, sets them free. And see, Paul knew that in the book of Deuteronomy, God instructs Israel to welcome runaway slaves and to provide for them. And he knew that the prophets repeatedly communicated that when the Messiah would come, one of the marks of his ministry is that he would set the captives free. And then Paul himself, in the letters that he penned, his go-to metaphor for the gospel message to communicate what Jesus accomplished for us through his death and resurrection was that Jesus had redeemed us from slavery to sin, and he had set us free. See, Paul clearly believed that God was in the business of freeing people from slavery. He was not pro-slavery. In addition, 
we can also know that Paul did advocate for the freeing of slaves. I, we, we know in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he actually tells slaves, like, if you're able to, then, then get out from under your masters. But most, the, the best example of this is what he writes to a guy named Philemon, who was actually a, a member of the church of Coloss, of, of, in Colossae that he's writing this letter to. But he writes a different letter to Philemon probably at the same time that he was writing Colossians. And in that letter, he tells Philemon to free a slave. See, what had happened was, and you can read this, New Testament letter of Philemon, but there was a slave named Onesimus who had escaped from Philemon. Philemon was the master. Onesimus was the slave. Onesimus escapes from Philemon, and he ends up with Paul. While Paul is in prison, Paul begins this relationship with Onesimus, and in that relationship, he actually leads Onesimus to trust in the Lord. And Onesimus becomes a brother in Christ. And then Paul writes Philemon and says, hey, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. But you can read this in the book of Philemon. It's, it's like literally like a page. <laughs> but in it, he says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. But when he gets there, here's what I want you to do. I want you to greet him as you would greet me. I want you to receive him as you would receive me, as a free man and as a brother in Christ. And Paul adds, if he owes you anything, then just charge it to my account, which is awesome because this is Paul playing a very awesome uh, Apostle Paul leveraged card. Because this is Paul saying, hey, uh, 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 Philemon, you owe your salvation to me. I mean, not that he, Paul saved Philemon, but that Paul was the one who brought the gospel message to Philemon. Philemon heard about what Jesus had done to, slay, to, to set him free from slavery to sin and death from Paul. And Paul says, hey, you owe me. So uh, if Onesimus owes you anything, just charge it to my account. Think, think we're covered. See, Paul advocated for the freeing of slaves. So why doesn't he do that here? Well, again, I, I don't know for sure. I know it's not because he thought slavery was good. He didn't. I know it's not because he didn't ever advocate for slaving, freeing slaves. He did. If I had to venture a guess for why he doesn't do it here, I would say it's because throughout all of Paul's writings, he doesn't spend a lot of time saying, here's how to fix your circumstances. He just says, here's how to honor God in your circumstances. That's, that's his main focus in all of his writings. Now, that doesn't justify it. Like, but Paul, wouldn't it have been good to just add that? <laughs> yeah, and I feel that. But I think that that's what he's doing here. He's saying, okay, in the, in the common Greco-Roman household, there was this relationship between master and slave. It's, it's, it's believed that up to 20% of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves, 20%. N.T. Wright, in commenting on this, said that the Roman world ran on slavery the way our modern world runs on electricity. It was the backbone of the economy. 
So as the gospel spread throughout the Roman world, many slaves trusted in Christ and joined the church, which means that in the early church, there were slaves and there were masters together in community as equals, as brothers and sisters in Christ, which was the phenomenon that didn't exist in any other place in society. And so here Paul addresses both parties. Again, addressing slaves first to dignify them and then masters. And he instructs them how to relate to one another in the name of Jesus. And what he says to them is insightful for us, specifically in how we should relate to the people that we serve under in the work world and people that serve under us in the, in the work world, either as employers or as employees. And, and you know, for, for sake of time, I'm not going to parse out all of this. But let me just uh, draw the big, you know, draw out the big idea of what he says in these verses, which is kind of found in verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. <coughs> oh, sorry. Huh. Been fighting a cold this week. Oh. Okay, so that's, that's the big idea. Why, now, why do we do that? Well, because ultimately, whatever you do, you work for Jesus. That's what Paul says here. That whatever you do, you work for Jesus. For you represent him. You bear his name. You're there in his name as his representative. So whatever you do, you work for Jesus. So when your boss is watching, you work hard. And when your boss isn't watching, you work hard for you're not working for your boss, but for Jesus as his representative. And, and, and know that even when your work doesn't feel rewarding or satisfying, which it often doesn't, your one true boss, Jesus will still reward you. That's what Paul says here. So whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. And then he turns the attention to the masters. And he says, if you are in a role of authority, here's what I want you to do. I want you to treat people under your authority well because you work for Jesus. <laughs> you work for Jesus too. We all work for Jesus. We all represent him. As Paul says, masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So you have a master too and you represent him. So treat people as he has treated you, which is to say, serve them, don't use them care for them, don't abuse them, provide for them, instead of just trying to wring out every little thing you can out of them. Work in a way that shows that you know, ultimately, you work for Jesus. Do whatever you do in his name, because you represent him. You are his empowered representative. That's a lot. Again, thank you for not throwing anything at me. I know I've had to rush through a lot of really heavy uh, stuff this morning. And, you know, I just want you all to know, I worked hard on this. I really try my best to do this well. But I'm sure many of you, many of you still have lots of questions or what abouts or why nots or, you know, what if. And uh, if so, let me just say, I, I'm, like, I'd love to talk 
please reach out. I'm here. Like, let's have conversations. This is really good. That's healthy. Ask questions. That's good. It's healthy. I also want to encourage you to do that within your MCs, your Midtown communities. That's, that is the group. Those are your people. Ask questions. Don't be shy. Let's talk about this stuff. Let's help each other learn and grow. Figure out what to do with this. Okay? For now, though, let me just kind of begin to land this plane. And what I want to do is just to reemphasize that the main pa- purpose of this passage is to help us think about how to make whatever we do be done in the name of Jesus. That whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever you do as a wife, whatever you do as a husband, whatever you do as a child or whatever you do as a parent, whatever you do as an employee or an employer, do it all in the name of Jesus. That's the call. We're going to need the Spirit of God to help us do that. So abide in Christ, friends. You can't do that on your own. You need to be rooted in Christ. One of the things that will help root you in Christ and abide in Christ is that we do, we follow the instruction that Paul adds on in the end of verse 17 when he ends that verse by saying, and giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus and give thanks to God the Father through him. And on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, this is a very fitting way to end this message that we would think about the fact that everything that we're called to do for one another here, Jesus has first done for us. And so we have so much reason to give thanks. Think about what Jesus has done for you. Jesus God put you first. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He served you, friends. And Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly, even when it meant going to the cross. And Jesus loved us unconditionally, loved us sacrificially by dying for us. That Jesus accomplished on the cross all the work that needed to be done to be able to set us slaves to sin and death and the enemy free. That Jesus has loved you in all of these ways. First, we have so much to be thankful for. As we process and as we take time to acknowledge and to respond by giving thanks to the Father through Jesus for what Jesus has done for us, it will help us stay rooted in Christ, abiding in him, so that we will go out as his empowered representatives and do likewise for others. And so to wrap this up, I want to invite our servers to begin passing out the communion elements. As we get ready to partake in communion together, I want to encourage you to take communion today with an attitude of thanksgiving. Now I want to give you an opportunity to give thanks to Jesus, friends, for how he has served you 
how he has loved you, how he has cared for you, and how he has treated you. That even though you, like me, failed to represent him well, that we fail to represent him faithfully, his love never fails. So take a minute now and give thanks for how he has loved you. And once everyone has received the communion elements, we'll take them together. Just now, spend some time with God, giving thanks to the Father through Jesus for how he's treated you. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Mm Thank you.